You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. story. And anyone else in this room that calls themselves a Christian would have been considered an atheist. See, for the first couple hundred years of the church's existence, anyone who called themselves a follower of Jesus were considered anti-religious by the Roman Empire. They were termed atheists. Why? Right? Because if you ask any Christian, they will tell you, I believe in a God. I follow a God. I'm clearly not atheistic. Well, the Romans use that term because the Christian picture of God was so radically different than anything they had ever seen that they couldn't uh, lump it into the same category. They couldn't call it religion because it was different than their religion. It was different than the religions that they knew around them. And the Romans were right, not about Christians being atheists. They were right about the Christian picture of God being something wholly different, being unique in anything we've seen across the course of uh, human religion. And today, in this series we're calling Enduring Questions, we're going to explore the picture that Jesus gives us of that God, the Christian picture of God. Now, it doesn't come to us via dictionary definition. Oftentimes, we want to look through this book and find a clear, laid-out dictionary definition, but that's not how this works. It doesn't come to us through high-minded philosophy or theology. It comes to us through a story. When Jesus was given the perfect opportunity to communicate to crowds of people who God was, he chose to tell a story. This is what he said. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there, he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place through that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. I will get up. I'll go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quick, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. 
And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. And then he became angry and refused to go in. And so his father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, come back, you have devou- who has devoured your property with prostitutes and killed a fatted calf for him, you throw a party. And the father said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you follow your heart, or do you follow the rules? Do you follow your heart, or do you follow the rules? The answer to that question has largely dictated most of spirituality throughout human history. Most religion across various cultures has answered that question one way or another, and that's determined what they do in their lives. There's two different frameworks that this has produced for many of us. I've got some graphics here that help lay these out. The first is the follow your heart framework. This framework assumes that the instincts and desires that we inherently have as humans are good or can be made good. And so our job, in order to find spiritual peace and joy and love, in order to find our spiritual home, it's to pursue those instincts, those desires. Chase after those. Let those dictate uh, your life for you, and you will ultimately find yourself at a spiritual home. And if there's a God out there, he will approve of this because he's the one who gave you the desires and the instincts and the like. That's the follow your heart framework. But that's not the only framework that exists. There's also a moralistic framework. This framework assumes that there is an inherent good or bad way to live. Independent of what your instincts or desires say, there is a standard that you need to follow. And so your job is to adhere to that standard as best as possible. This is what most world religions function with in some way or another. In the Western world, it often looks like following the right rules, obeying the right moral code, doing the thing that God tells you to do. In Eastern faiths, it's more like uh, aligning your desires with the ultimate will of a divine presence that's not necessarily personal, but is more impersonal. In Buddhism, it's about overcoming your desires. And if you do that, then you achieve enlightenment. And you do that by meditating, by doing different religious practices. In Hinduism, it's about worshiping the right gods at the right times in the right way. But... All in all, whether it's west or east, it all follows in the same picture of follow the rules. Make sure you do the right things, and then you'll get yourself true spiritual peace and joy and home. And it's interesting because Jesus' audience in this passage fits pretty nicely into these categories. The first people that have gathered around him that uh, Luke mentions here are the tax collectors and the sinners. These were the religious and social outcasts of the time, the people who followed their instincts. This is the follow your heart crowd. And then alongside those tax collectors and sinners, there's a group called the Pharisees. These were the religious and social insiders. They, instead of being the follow your heart crew, were the moralistic crew. The ones who said, I've done all the right things, and so God will come to justify me. I will find my way home because I followed the right rules. And This moralist crew, the Pharisees, didn't love the tax collectors and sinners. 
They saw them as outsiders. They saw them as people who were ultimately undermining the way to true spiritual life. And so Jesus is dealing with both of these frameworks right in front of him, and he tells this story in order to disrupt both. He tells this story in order to change how both the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees see and understand God. And he tells it to all of us throughout human history who live with the follow-your-heart framework or the moralistic framework. He says both of those are wrong. Neither of those will lead you to true spiritual life. And the story he tells here has become famous over the course of Christian history. It's one of the most retold stories of Jesus. It's commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, what might be wrong with that title? There's only, there's only one son in that title, right? But there's more than one son in the story, right? There's two sons. There's a younger son and an older son. And so this story has two parts. It's about two different lost sons. But even then, that doesn't capture all the characters. There's another character, the father. This story is as much about a loving father as it is about two different sons. And so we need to be careful not to just locate it in one particular area. What we're going to do as a community is explore both parts of this parable. This week, we're going to look at the younger son, part one. Next week, we're going to look at the older son, part two. And in both of them, we're going to see how we understand the father through both of those sons. So let's jump into part one here. There are three questions that Jesus is answering in the first part of the story. The questions are, who are we? Who is God? And how do we get true life? Who are we? Who is God? And how do we get true life? Let's dig into the story and see how Jesus answers these questions. The story kicks off with a bang. The younger son shows up to his dad and he says, Father, give me my inheritance right now. He demands it. He doesn't ask the question. He demands it. And for us in our culture, that's a little jarring, right? We're used to people getting inheritances when their family members pass away. But there are some scenarios in which inheritances can come earlier. I know some folks that have gotten inheritances in uh, progressive means, right, to help pay for a home or more education or those sorts of things. It's happened progressively. And so it's not completely out of the norm that you get your inheritance before your family dies. But in Middle Eastern cultures, both today and in the ancient world, this was utterly scandalous, unheard of. See, this is a culturally revered tradition, and it's loaded with all sorts of important meaning for the people in this time. Taking the inheritance before your parents pass away was never done. You never requested something like this. What the younger son is essentially saying is, Father, I see you as a means to my end. That's the only reason that I have a relationship with you in the first place. You are the vehicle through which I get what I want on my terms. And so my relationship with you is not important. I just want your stuff so that I can do with it what I feel I want to. I think I can find my true home, true love, true satisfaction, just using your stuff as I see fit. I don't need to be here. I don't need to be in the home that you've given me. I can take your stuff and use it for myself. In fact, that's so true that I'd rather you be dead right now and have all of your stuff than for me to continue to live with you as my father, for me to continue to live in this home. He's wishing the father dead. There's a Middle Eastern uh, culture and New Testament scholar named Kenneth Bailey who summarizes this. Uh, he says, for over 15 years, I've been asking people from all walks of life, from Morocco to India, from Turkey to Sudan, about the implications 
of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living? The answer has always been emphatically the same, and the conversation runs as follows. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Because the request means he wants his father to die. This is an appalling start to the story. Jesus' audience would be shocked by this, and they're ready for the father to lay the hammer down, right? All right, this is going to get, he's going to get some discipline here, right? The father's going to call out the son. He might even excommunicate him from his home. But that's not what the father does. Without any break in the narrative, the text tells us that the father divides the property between them. No hesitation. And so as shocking as the son's demand was in this story, the father's response is even more shocking. No father would do something like this. No father would acquiesce this request. And the language that we get in our day for describing the father's stuff, it's property in our English translation. And that doesn't quite grasp the fullness. But the Greek word helps us, I think. The Greek word used here is bion, which comes from the root bios. Anybody know what the word bios means? You know what the word bios means. Life. It's where we get the word biology, the study of life. The father is not just transferring money from one bank account to another. He's not just saying, well, you can have these things of mine. He is giving his very life to his son. Because your property in that day, in an agricultural setting, your property, your livestock, your, your stuff, your land, it was everything you had. It was the entirety of your identity. It was all of your life packaged into one thing. And the father says, you can have this life. Willingly gives it away. So this isn't just a story of a teenager with a little bit of wanderlust who wants to leave home for a bit. This is an utter rejection of his home. Flat out, I don't want to be here. I wish you were dead. I want your stuff, and I want to use it how I want to use it. And the father lets him. He gives away his life and allows his son to utterly reject the home that he has. And that's what the son does. He goes to a distant country and squanders it all on dissolute living, which I, I love that phrase. It's like a very prim and proper. He squandered it on dissolute living, right? I mean, that's a very proper way of saying sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Like he did whatever he wanted to do. He followed his heart, his instincts, his desires. And he did that because he believed the home he had was not where he could be truly satisfied. He needed to go to a different home. He needed to make his home elsewhere. And it doesn't work out. His desires lead him to poverty. And eventually, he's working with pigs. Remember, Jesus is speaking to a first-century Jewish audience. Pigs are disgusting. They are unclean. This is the lowest of the low. And then the text says he longs to eat what the pigs are eating. The text is intentionally equating him with the pigs here. He's seeing himself in swine. And all of a sudden, he realizes what he's done. He's rejected his identity. He's rejected the thing that he was given, independent of what he did, the love and home of the father, and he's tried to build his own elsewhere, and it's led him to become pig adjacent. It's led him to deny the core of who he is. So who are we? 
That's the question Jesus wants us to ask here. Who are we? We're a lot like the younger son, you guys. See, the story of humanity, according to Jesus, is one where our home, our uh, spiritual and physical uh, fulfillment as humans is in unity with God. That's the purpose. That's why we were made. Before we've done and said anything, God says, you are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are deeply beloved, independent of anything you do or don't do. That identity is yours from God. This beautiful picture of unity between the divine and the human. And then from that unity, we look around and see our siblings, the other children of God. And we're told to love those children because they're in the image of God. This unity between humans extends from the unity between humans and God. And then from there, we're supposed to cultivate the property of the father, the life, the bios. Our job is to live in loving relationship with God, loving relationship with each other, and loving relationship with the world. That's what we were designed to do. And we do that because we're the beloved children of God. And yet all of us, in our own ways, have decided to leave home. We've decided to chase after other things because we believe that they can give us life and love, the things that we're really longing for. They're out there in a distant country. I don't know all the specific reasons for each and every one of you. I know maybe some of yours. It doesn't really matter the reasons. The heart is the same. We've decided to say that our identity is not found in loving relationship with God and with others and in the world. It's found instead out there in a distant country. And so we've pursued home, defining life on our own terms. There's a good quote from Henry Nouwen in his book on this story. He says this, Leaving home is living as though I do not yet have a home, and must look to find one. I leave home every time I lose faith in the voice that calls me the beloved and follow the voices that offer a great variety of ways to win the love that I so much desire. We've left our identity. We've left our belovedness before God, and we've pursued it in other places. We've longed to get love from all of the ways that the world says, here's where you get love. Here's how you can have true spiritual satisfaction. Here's where home is. And all it takes is a short audit of our lives, a short review of our lives to find out how we've done this. We followed the world's track that says, getting the right career or the right position, then you will be fulfilled. Then you'll have satisfaction. Then you'll have love. Or being in a relationship with the right person, Mr. or Mrs. X, then, then you'll have love or consuming as much as we can, getting more and more of the things that our hearts desire. As long as you get that next thing, then, then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll find home. And I say we here because I've done the same thing, friends. I have no desire to stand up here and tell you what you've done wrong. I've participated in the same thing. My whole life, I've been taught that performance and outer affirmation is the way to true life. It started in academics. That was a big thing for me growing up. My parents pushed me to get good grades, and I got good grades, and yet the Bs still crept in sometimes. Or the As really didn't give me the deep satisfaction that I was looking for, and so I had to keep going and going and going. I went all the way through grad school, and I still think about more school, going into debt over more school. How crazy is that? Right? And if it wasn't academics, it was athletics. 
I'm not a very competitive person. Yeah, people laugh because they know I'm a very competitive person. I love to win. And winning was another way to get the external affirmation that I was looking for. That's where life would come. And so I'd rack up the W's. But eventually, some L's creep in. And eventually, the W's don't end up satisfying in the way that I wanted because that's not where I get home. And so then, I allowed that same mentality to creep into my faith, into my religion. I'd pray the right prayers. I'd do the right things. I'd serve the right people. And that's where I'd get affirmation. And even then, that didn't satisfy me. I can remember a time when I was in middle school. I prayed. Guys, this prayer was incredible. As an eighth grader, it'd blow you away. And my family's like, Clint, that was an amazing prayer. And I remember that being a milestone. I'm like, all right, now I know how to do this. Now I know how to get the affirmation, right? I built this system where external affirmation would lead me to true, lasting satisfaction. And I can tell you, in my entire life, I've never found it in those things. Because that's not where home is. And it's always a temptation for me to go to those same things. We're all the younger son. We've tried to make our homes amidst all sorts of things that fail to provide it for us. We all have our own distant countries that we come from. But that's not the only question that Jesus wants us to answer here. The next question is, who is God? We find that out by digging into the Father's response. See, the son here, he's staring at the pigs. He's like, that food looks really good. Wait, what am I doing, right? I want to eat what these nasty pigs are eating. There's something wrong here. It says uh, that in his own head, in his own heart, he says, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's how he's going to return to his father. And a subtle, quick note that I want to make on that. This is not a response of shame in the younger son. Sometimes we think that shame is the thing that leads us back. It's actually not. See, what he's doing is recognizing his identity as being dignified. And he's also identifying that he's wasted that dignity. He's saying, I am a son, and I haven't lived as one. He's not saying, I'm not a son. His sonship is the thing that motivates him to go back. Shame is never the way to come back home. It's never the way to come back home. The realization that I have eternal, lasting dignity in front of the Father, that's how I realize and, and my need to come home. That's how I realize that I've wasted. And so he puts together a plan to return. And you notice he says, functionally, I'm going to make it up to my Father. He's going to offer to work for him, which is a fancy way of shifting frameworks, right? You notice what he's doing? See, at first he said, I'm going to follow my heart. And he realized that led me to a pigsty. So now he says, oh, I get it, the moralistic framework. That's the one I need to pursue. And so I'll go back and do all the things that my Father wants me to do. He shifts, and you can imagine him putting together this speech, this presentation, right? He's got this nice little PowerPoint clicking through the slide. He's like, these are all the great things that I'm going to do. That's what I would do anyway. I love PowerPoints. But things don't go that way. Because before he even gets home, the father sees him far off and sprints to him, embraces him. For a patriarch to run in the ancient world was shameful. Women might run, children ran, dignified men did not run. It was undignified. And in that world, you remember their garments were often long, so he would have had to like pull them up and run like this. He looks like a goof running. I just knocked my microphone off. See, I look like a goof doing it right now. Imagine thousands of years ago where you have to pull up your garment and run. He is willing to take on the shame of the culture around him because the only thing that matters is his son coming home. That's all that matters to him. 
The way that other people see him, the way that other people define him doesn't matter because the son is the one he wants to welcome back. And then, after his father hugs him, the son tries to execute his plan. He rips out the PowerPoint. He's like, Dad, check it out. I've got this plan. I'm going to make it up to you. I've sinned before heaven, and I've sinned before you, and I need to make it up to you. And the father doesn't even let him finish the PowerPoint. He, like, throws it away. He interrupts the son's speech. He says, get a robe, get sandals, get a ring. Put them on him. Kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party because my son is back. He doesn't even let him try to make it up to him because that's not the point. What, and what does the son do to warrant this sort of response from the father? Nothing. All he did was turn back. All he did was go home. That's it. His identity was still as the son, independent of what he did or didn't do. That's a crucial point, you guys. Before the son went away, he was the son, independent of what he did. When he came back, he was still the son, independent of what he did, because your identity is always secured in the one who gives it to you. And the one who gives it to you says, you are beloved, you are a son, you are a daughter. And it can't go away. The only thing that the son does differently is turn back and recognize his identity and now choose to live out of that new identity. So who is God? Every single one of us in this room walks into here with a certain picture of what God looks like in our minds. Some of us might think of a moralistic teacher, right? Like the Catholic nuns with rulers whipping you on your wrist, making sure you stay in line. Some of us might think of an angry judge with a, a powdered white wig, right? waiting with a gavel. Some of us think of a powerful bearded man on clouds. Thanks for that, Michelangelo. Lightning bolts ready to smite you, right? Some of us might think of an impersonal force that's around us but isn't really uh, interacting with us. Some of us aren't even sure what we think about God at all. But Jesus gives us a clear picture here. God is a perfectly loving father. And I know that the picture of a father can be difficult for us because we all have fathers. We all have dads. Sometimes they haven't been the best. Sometimes they haven't even been around. But notice, the picture of the father here is radically different than any other earthly father we've ever known. In fact, he does very unfatherly things based on how we would characterize fathers. We think of fathers as hard, right, disciplinarians. That's not what this father is. He runs like a mother might run to his son. The picture here is of God as a perfectly loving parent, not a, an engendered picture of fatherhood as we tend to think of it in our culture. This parent names each and every one of us beloved sons and daughters, independent of what we've done or failed to do. This is a God who chases after us. This is a God who's relational. This is a God who's overwhelmingly merciful and compassionate. It's a God who longs to bring us home. And so this story is a reminder to us, always, of who God is. But in case we forget, or in case those other stories start to creep in on us, Jesus made sure we didn't just have a story. Jesus made sure that the God he's talking about here was manifest on earth in him. He made sure that if we ever question who God is, we can look at Jesus and say, that's what he looks like. Independent of our other pictures, that's who God is. Think about it in Jesus' life. He didn't sit far away, stomping his feet and waiting for us to get things right to come back. He came into the world 
He inhabited our condition as humans, and he brought healing. And then, at the end of his life, he took on the shame and pain of all of our pigsties, all of our stuff, just like the father ran out and took on the shame of his culture. Jesus took on complete shame, complete pain, utter desolation, because that's often how we feel. He says, I will take that on so you don't have to. And then he left it in the pigsty. He rose again, and he said, friends, if you want to be unified with God again, if you want to connect to your father again, it's through me. And it's always here. The father is waiting for you. He's waiting with a robe. He's waiting with a ring. He's waiting with sandals, all markers of being welcomed back into the family. And so whenever we forget what God is like, Jesus says, look at me. Look at me. Any other picture of God that you have should always be bumped up against Jesus. And if it doesn't look like Jesus, it's not true. Because Jesus is who God is. So, the third question. How do we get home? How do we get true life? Well, I think there's two things we learn in this story. We learn to turn back, and we learn to live as the beloved. We learn to turn back and live as the beloved. First, turning back. We all know that in each of our own ways, we've wandered. Some of you are probably thinking of those things right now, the ways that I've wandered away from my true identity, the ways that I've lived out of shame and pain rather than the life of being eternally loved. This God says, all you got to do is come back home. I'm waiting for you. My arms are here waiting for you. And if it's the first time you've done that, or if it's the hundredth time you've done that, it doesn't change the Father's response because he just wants to throw a party. He just wants to have a barbecue, guys. And he wants you to be there because you're his child. And nothing has changed that. That's the first thing. We turn back. Every time we stray, we say, Lord, I need you. I'm for, I've forgotten who I am. I've traded life for death, and now I'm in a pigsty. But I know that you have life, and I know that you've named me as your child, and I want that love to define who I am. I want to come back home. That's what Christians call confession and repentance, which, by the way, is not a way to make it up to God. Oftentimes we think that. Oh, God, I've done wrong, and now I'll confess and repent, and now I've made it up to you. That's not how this works. Confession and repentance is simply an acknowledgement that I'm not currently living as the person that I'm made to live, and I want to live instead as the person that I am. It's only a turning. It's not a PowerPoint presentation to make it up. So that's the first thing. We turn back. The second thing we do is live as the beloved. See, once we turn back home, we're welcomed back into the feast, but... Now we're part of that family again. And that family lives differently. They don't live defined by the voices out there that say your home is in these material possessions. Your home is in your accomplishments. Your home is in your achievements. That's not how this family works. This family says, instead, your identity is secure. So now, welcome everyone else back home. Bring others into this party. Grace, friends, picture of grace here means it's time to move on. Grace means it's time to leave that pigsty life behind and live differently. Living as the beloved means being formed each day more and more deeply into how much I'm loved by Jesus. 
how much I'm loved by the God of the universe, and then longing to extend that love to everyone else. We Christians love and serve and advocate for the oppressed and pray and give and feed the hungry and clothe the naked, not because we need to make it up to God, but because we know that God loves us and he loves everyone else out there. Beyond these walls, you go into a world that needs this love, that is longing for home. So I don't know exactly where each of you are at this moment right now when it comes to God. I might have an idea, but I have no desire to guess. Only you can respond to God in your own way. But here's something I do know. God is crazy about you. God wants what's best for you. And God is running to you, longing to embrace you and remind you that you and you and you and you and you and you are his beloved. True life's waiting for us, friend. God is waiting with open arms. The only thing we need to do is turn back, to return home. And once we're there, to invite everyone else to join with us. There's a barbecue happening. It's a great time. Let's bring everyone else in this world back home to remember who they are. Let's pray.